Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington, and you won the lottery because today is the day we talk about adultery, everyone's topic that they would love to hear about. And I just want to acknowledge that, yeah, that probably produces some anxiety. It produces some maybe fear, trepidation. Um, maybe some of you are like, oh, this is going to be fun. Um, well, it's not fun, <laughs> but it's really important. And so one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it does not shy away from things that are real and things that are hard, um, but it addresses them. And so that's what we do as well. And so we are just going through the Ten Commandments, and you stumble into these really hard um, parts of the Ten Commandments because God's law addresses hard parts of our lives. And before I start, I want to, um, I was thinking about this as Chris was going over the Heidelberg Catechism, that we interact with laws very interestingly. I think throughout all of human nature kind of has a generic impulse against law and against restriction. Um, so that's not unique to us, but we have a unique way of doing it in our culture because we see restriction as against freedom. We see restriction as a limit to freedom. But one of the things that is consistent and it is rooted back again into the very essence of the Ten Commandments is that God has rescued them from slavery. And this is a law for freedom. And so that's really important this morning especially, is because we naturally, in our hyper-sexualized world that we live in, we see any restriction when it comes to sex or sexuality as kind of punitive or as old-fashioned or as oppressive, regressive, fill-in-the-blank. But the whole essence of the Ten Commandments is that it is giving us a frame. It is helping us to frame out our lives and show us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And so one of the ways that we love our neighbor, and by loving our neighbor, love God, is by not committing adultery. So we're going to be in um, Exodus 20 still. I'm going to go ahead and read the preamble that just kind of should always be washing over us every time that we enter into the Ten Commandments to remember what is actually happening here. And then I'll read verse 14 as well. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not commit adultery. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are good. And you have made this world to reflect your goodness, to reflect your grace, to reflect your love. And yet, what has happened to your creation is that it has become twisted, it has become marred, it has become polluted. And we participate in that. If we're honest, it's what we want. We want it our way. All of us have rejected your plan 
for various things. All of us here have rejected in some way your plan for our romantic sexual lives. But Lord, you have not forsaken us. You have not given us over to our own selfishness and lust. But you have come and rescued us. You have set us free. Lord, there is freedom in your word. And we find it only as we see it fulfilled in the person and work of your son. So God, help us to see that. Help us to receive what you have for us this morning. Help us to open up our lives, open up our patterns, open up our secrets so that your light may shine and life may grow in those places. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The history of the human race began with a marriage. That's how Herman Bavinck opens up a book that he wrote on Christian family. The history of the human race began with a marriage. And in order to talk about adultery, we have to talk about marriage. It's implied. You can't commit adultery if there's not marriage. And so how we're going to look at what um, God is trying to communicate to us through the law and then through how he fulfills the law is we're going to look at how marriage is good. Marriage is good. We're going to look at how marriage goes wrong. And then finally, and this is the main point this, this morning, is that marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about you. And I realize that not everyone in here is married. You may not yet be married, but want to be married. You may not yet be married and don't want to be married. You may be divorced. You may be widowed. There's a lot of different characterizations and places for us to fit in. And guess what? For most of us, we will probably travel through multiple of those over the course of our lives. You will go from being married to, or from not being married to being married to probably not being married again. And so it's important to just acknowledge that this is not just for, it's not a marriage seminar. It's not just for the individual marriages here, people, or even just for people who want to be married one day. And that's because God is giving this to his people, plural. This is something he wants done in community. He wants it to be a community project. So as we think of marriage is good, marriage goes bad, marriage isn't about you, remember that. That we as a community have been given this task of not committing adultery. And we do that together. We support one another in that. And that means we support the antithesis of that, which is loving each other in such a way in our marriages that the beauty of the gospel is displayed. We'll get there. But first, marriage is good. So at the very beginning, God created everything. 
He created the heavens and the earth. He created the sky and the land. He created the waters and separated them apart from the land. And then he started filling everything with creatures, with all of these wonderful creatures, with stars and angelic beings, with fish and swimming things and land animals and what the Bible says, creeping things. I like that, creeping things. And all of these things he created, and then he created Adam. And he comes with Adam, and he says, hey, Adam, look at all this stuff I made. Why don't you name it? I have put you as a steward over all of this. And so I can just imagine Adam seeing all of these creatures. And the thing about these creatures is that they have pairs. There's like and like. And then there's a different type of creature. And there's like and like within that. And there's partners. And there's all these different categories. And there's beauty in the diversity and the unity of God's creation. And Adam's overjoyed. He's overwhelmed with how wonderful it is. And the fact that his creator is standing there and giving him this task, but there's something. There's something missing. All of these creatures have a partner. Not Adam. (laughs) All of these creatures correspond to another creature, but not Adam. He's lonely. Before he even knows what it is to be lonely, he feels it. And because God is really good, and he's a really good gift giver, he's doing this with intention. He's doing this as a way, as a prelude, as a building up. He's having Adam look with detail at all of these creatures as a way of then revealing Eve who he has made specifically for him. And he has made him specifically for her. And so when Adam sees Eve, he exalts her. He worships in song. He praises her. He falls in love. It's a love story. And he, all of a sudden, is not alone He has a partner. He doesn't just have a partner, but now he has someone and he has the means. God has provided him the means to do the good work that God has given them. And so marriage is good because, yes, it provides companionship. It provides deep and meaningful companionship. From the very beginning, you see this. It's someone who is a friend, who is a lover, who is a partner. And it fulfills a longing that we have been made for, to have that type of intimacy. That's what it is. It's intimacy. They understand how they fit together, how they go together, how God has designed them to work together to accomplish what God has given them to do, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so marriage is also good because it produces children. And this is part of God using them as stewards of the earth to fill it, to be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth. What do you do when you fill the earth? Well, you expand the garden. 
all of the chaos of creation starts to be put in order by these little image bearers. And that is the result, the fruit of marriage. It's an immense blessing to the world because it's producing more of these image bearers who are reflecting God's image on creation. And then what happens as that work is going on, as there's more multiplication, more and more children, more and more people, well, marriage creates community. Marriage is good because it forms the building blocks of community. Without marriages, cities don't exist. Without marriages, nations don't exist. Without marriages, churches don't exist. Now, they're not made up of only marriages, but they are the building blocks of it, and they supply children and people. We are all here today because of the gift of reproduction. And that happens in God's plan in the context of a marriage. So companionship, children, and community, marriage is good. But it goes bad. And it goes bad quickly in Genesis. The fruit of Adam and Eve's marriage is ultimately rebellion against God. So the second that they reject God's plan for their lives, their marriage is infected by that rebellion. And all of a sudden, all of the good things that marriage is supposed to do, and all of the good um, mechanisms that marriage provides for human desire, they start to get twisted. And this twisting can be characterized in a lot of ways, but today we're going to look at it specifically through lust. Because that is what Jesus identifies as really the heart, the essence of adultery, is lust. Well, what is lust? It's a word that you probably have heard. And if you think about lust, it has at its core a selfish desire for self-gratification. Lust has a selfish, selfish desire for self-gratification. It's all about me, what I get, what I want, how I get it. And that is what characterizes lust. And this usually takes on, in our kind of like use of the word, a sexual connotation. But it's not just sexual. It can be a lot of different things. And that's one of the things that I want to kind of like open up for you today. Is that when we're talking about adultery, yes, we're talking about sexual infidelity. We're talking about sex, sexual desires, sexual intimacy, sexual thoughts that are occurring outside of the context of marriage. But that's not all that we're talking about. We're talking about a lot of different things that go into that river that leads to sexual infidelity. And I think one of the ways to think about that is this selfish desire that we have. And so I want to expand your understanding of lust and how different things actually are participation in contributions to 
and leading you down a road of adultery. And I want, I want to do that because I think that's what the intent of the Ten Commandments is. is It gives us this little pithy statement, you shall not commit adultery, to cause us to reflect. How, how do we do that? Does anybody wake up one day and say, as a goal for the day, I'm going to commit adultery today? Usually not. Maybe it does. I don't know. But instead, subtly, and existing in a world that is infected with sin, infected with the rebellion of Adam and Eve, having a heart that has been inherited from Adam and Eve's heart of rebellion, and then living with a lurking enemy who's trying to undermine and undo all of God's plan, we get pulled into what Scripture broadly identifies as adultery without knowing it sometimes. So it's lust. And here's what lust does. Lust pollutes. It pollutes. And so marriage was designed in a very specific way. And if you can see it right from the beginning. You can also see it in the New Testament teaching on it. It was designed for self-giving love. Adam was to give himself to Eve. Eve was to give herself to Adam. The orientation was to the other person. That was the design. The pollution because of lust works against the design. And so now, all of a sudden, any marriage that self-centeredness enters into, well, it's polluted by that lust. Any marriage that is operating outside, any so-called marriage operating outside of God's design of man and woman coming together, committing themselves in an intimate and trusting covenant, it's polluted. And it's tearing away at the fabric of what God was trying to do with marriage. And God's design for marriage was always to show all of creation how good he is. What it looks like to be in relationship with him. It's hard for creatures to fathom that, and so he designed these human relationships of marriage to just give us an idea and then to show the world what it looks like for a self-giving love relationship that is perfected in him. The other way that lust penetrates marriages and the ramifications of it is ultimately alienation. So when you have a principle of selfish desires being, tri- being sought after, and this can happen in the context of marriage, it can also happen outside the context of marriage. So, you know, this is a theme. We are all adulterers. So sorry to, like, pull that Band-Aid off. But you have self-gratifying desires, We can just say it. It's okay. 
all of us have them. And what happens when you have those self-gratifying desires is that you become alienated from other people. All of a sudden, you're separated. There's distance. There's coldness. I made the mistake of watching the NBA playoff game. And one of the things that is really easy to tell about a team in basketball, and especially the NBA, I think, is when a player starts getting selfish and forcing up shots for him, trying to get stats, the rest of the team is not into it. And it just kind of kills the flow of the game. And that team usually does not win, no matter how good that player might be. Whereas if there's a team that's playing unselfishly, it's working together, trying to create open shots for each other, there's an energy to that. And you can see it in the body language of those players. And this is just an illustration of the dynamics at work in human relationships, is that we operate best, we receive, we get excited about that self-giving type of love. And there's a community that's built around it, but when selfishness enters in, alienation sets in. So here's a couple of examples of what this looks like practically. We're kind of talking about this abstractly. Um, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty a little bit. So you might, in some of these examples, you might be like, really? Adultery? Why are we talking about this? Hang with me. So here's an example. You get into an argument with your spouse. And like all arguments, you know that you are right and your spouse is wrong. And so let's just go with that. Okay, you might be right. Congratulations. What happens in that argument when lust has entered the picture? Again, self-gratification, selfish desire. Is it provokes your pride. And so as you're arguing, you're like, yeah, I'm going to win this because I'm right. And so I'm going to convince my spouse that I'm right and that he is wrong, that she is wrong. And so what is happening in the dynamics of that is that you're going to have opportunities of reconciliation, of forgiveness. You're going to have opportunities for grace. But they're probably going to require you to let go of the fact that you're right. And you won't do it. And you'll fight. And you'll argue. Maybe you'll win. Maybe you'll win the argument and lose your spouse. Maybe you'll win the argument and be lonely like you've never been lonely before. Because you just gratified your desire. A marriage where that is happening, that dynamic, and it happens in every marriage, that has just become fertile ground for adultery. Because the alienation is there. That loneliness has been reintroduced into that relationship. And now you're looking 
for something. But it's not the kind of loneliness that Adam experienced. It's darker. And it's twisted. Here's another example. If you make the idea of marriage about you and filling or for fulfilling your desire for what you want your life to look like. So if you have a life plan and getting married is part of that life plan, and that is your primary goal, your marriage or your potential marriage is now about you. And what will happen is if you get married or if you don't get married, you're going to be bitter. Because at some point, even in the best marriages, you are going to look bad. At some point, you're going to be disappointed. At some point, you're going to be let down. At some point, you're going to be betrayed. At some point, you're going to be hurt. If you don't get married, at some point, you're going to start getting angry at God. At some point, you're going to start having a bitterness set in towards the opposite sex. At some point, you're going to question whether God really sees you, knows you, cares about you. Because the idea of marriage has become about you. It's been polluted with that selfish desire. It can start out as a good desire. That desire to be married is a good desire, but it gets twisted, it gets polluted. And then another one that we have to talk about because it's everywhere. And it's one of the main ways that we very concretely, explicitly violate God's good law. And it's one of the main ways that I think we need to grow in hatred towards what sin does. And it's all forms of pornography and sexual explicitness. Because what pornography and the whole industry that's built on it, what it does, it has mastered the art of gratifying selfish desires. It has mastered the art of honing those desires, of developing them, of making sure that you keep coming back and that you never get enough. And it's mastered an entire system of exploitation that is just hidden, pretending like it's not there. But it's there. And what it's doing is it's creating people who are so used to just gratifying their own desires that they don't even know how to give of themselves. They forget what it's even like to love someone else. It's dehumanizing. Not to mention that underneath what's empowering that entire industry is a system of abuse and of exploitation. And it leads to a society that became 
very okay with rape, with exploitation. And yeah, we're seeing maybe a little bit of a reaction against it, but it's not the kind of reaction that's born out of love yet. And this enters into our marriages. It enters into all of our marriages, and it infects the marriage. It infects the mind of the person who's consuming it. It infects the heart and the trust of the spouse who's hurt by it. And it makes war within the marriage. And what it does is it lies. It lies to you. It lies to the entire world about who God is and how he has made us and what he has made us for. Because it completely destroys intimacy and trust. And that's what adultery does. So what do we do? What do we do about this? Well, I think you can look... um, you can look in this room, you can look at your neighbor, you can look at societal trends. There's a number of ways that we are kind of reckoning with this. One of them is to just kind of give up on marriages. Like, yeah, we're just going to cohabit. Marriage will ruin it. So we're just not going to get married. So some people are single or not married out of fear. They're like, yeah, it's just better to not do it. So I'll stay away from it and be safe. So marriage rates are going down. Another way is through unfounded, unjust divorce. It's like, yeah, my marriage isn't really fulfilling my desires. This isn't really what I thought it was cut out to be. I'm not really getting my needs met. So no-fault divorce. And then there's another way that I think is probably more common in the church. There's cold, business-like partnerships. Where you kind of look at your spouse and you make an unsaid agreement. Like, hey, we'll just, we'll just get these kids out. We'll just maintain the house. We'll just make some money. We'll retire. We'll just get through this life. Let's just survive. And all of those solutions, they become plausible because we've tried to solve them with human wisdom. We've tried to solve them with communication strategies. We've tried to resolve them with mentors. We've tried to resolve them with reading a book. And I'm not saying that those things are not good. All of those things are good. But they're second. The first thing is that we need to remember that the problem with all of these marriages resides in our heart. And so we need something that deals with the heart. And that is the resource of the gospel is that we have met a Lord who deals with our heart. And so if you don't apply the gospel to your marriage or to your sexual life, 
If you don't apply the gospel to that thing, it's kind of like putting on goggles while you're swimming in water that's poisoned. Okay, you might see a little bit better, but you're going to die. So it doesn't matter. You have got to apply the gospel to your marriage. You have to. What does that mean? Well, the only way to deal with your heart is to receive Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the very God that spoke Adam and Eve into existence. He is the word that created Eve for Adam, who then took on flesh for you. He came for you. And his coming was in a way like the revelation of Eve to Adam, but instead of a husband who was longing for a partner, it's sinners who despised their Savior. He came. God revealed him. He gave him. And we, because we, all of us, are adulterers, we said, crucify him. Crucify him. We despised him. But despite our rejection and adultery, God was faithful, and he raised Jesus. And by raising Jesus, he gives us new life. He gives us new eyes. He gives us a new heart to receive Jesus. And when you receive that new life, new eyes, new heart, you then realize, oh, my marriage isn't about me. It's not about me. It's about telling the story of Christ and the church, of Christ and his people. That's what my marriage is about. And that happens when you're believing and applying the gospel to your marriage. And it creates this pattern of life-giving practices in your marriage. Let's talk about that argument. That same argument happens. The same one where you're right, and you know you're right, and you're going to prove yourself how right you are, and you're going to prove your spouse how right you are. That voice is still there. (laughs) Believing the gospel doesn't get rid of that voice, unfortunately. It's still there. You still think you're right. But what happens is another voice is introduced. And it's kind of that whisper saying, hey, man, this isn't about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about showing off the grace of God. Hmm. Doesn't seem like it's that important if I'm right or not. (laughs) Now it seems like it's more important that I lay my life down for my spouse, that I submit myself. To Christ, for her, for him. Because when Jesus appears, when he comes, when he dies, when he raises again, we receive union with him. 
and our minds are united to his mind, and our hearts are united to his heart, and our lives now are united to his life. And so what happens is that there's forgiveness, there's repentance. And friends, you may, you may need to go to get marriage counseling, but some of you just need to repent, just need to ask for forgiveness, just need to soften yourself, just need to remember that your marriage isn't about you, that you can let go, that you are free to love your spouse with the heart of Christ. So those arguments are resolved, but they're resolved with the resources of the Spirit as it's working the gospel into your heart. When your marriage isn't about you, sex is also put into its place. And here is a vision for sexual life within marriages for us all to think about. And I'm going to read this. This is from a book, Married for God, Christopher Ashe. If you want it, I will buy it for you. It's really good. And I want to read what he says about how sex fits into this. And this is really getting at kind of the fulfillment of how do we not commit adultery? We have marriages that look like this. We conclude that sex must be put in its proper place in marriage. On the one hand, it is not the be-all and end-all of marriage. Sex is not a god or a goddess. Sex cannot save us or give us our identity or fulfillment. But on the other hand, sex is very important. And the sexual relationship needs to be nurtured as the heart of a relationship of faithful love. Around sex, there is friendship and companionship. And out of these flow hospitality, a home into which others can be welcomed, a family that serves and loves others in friendship and loves the unlovely. So we must nurture sex, but not as an end in itself. We nurture the private intimacy of marriage in order to keep the fires burning that will warm others outside. When sex is put in its proper place, neither too important nor neglected, then it will thrive as it, was, as it was designed to flourish as sex in the service of God. That picture is a community project where we care about each other in this way. Across the spectrum of life stages, we have a heart that is geared towards that picture. And it's not because we are going to hold ourselves up as some awesome testimony of how you know, Christians really figure this out and do a great job. No, we're going to fail at this. We are going to stumble through it. We're going to have adultery come into this church and wreak havoc. I can promise you that. But I can also promise that the one who is our husband, Christ, is also our physician. He's our great healer. And so no matter if you have hurt others through your adultery or have been hurt by others, you have one who will heal. And our job is to show off his love through our marriages. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. 
It's probably going to happen in a way that you don't expect. It's probably going to be happening in your life in a way that's way harder and more complicated than it sounds. It's not clean and easy because it's not about your self-righteous desire to show off how great you are. It's not about your desire to show the world that you're more moral than they are because they don't care about marriage and we do. No, it's about showing Christ's love for the church. Because just like the history of the human race began with a marriage, it's also going to end with one. There is a day when Jesus will come back as a bridegroom. And we will recognize him because the pattern of that marriage exists here by the grace of God through the Spirit of God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you redeem, that you provide, and that you restore. And we also thank you that you have saved us from ourselves, from being the center of the world, from being the center of our own universes, and that you have called us into something much better, something much more beautiful, something that is worth laying down our pride something that is worth putting to death our selfish desires, something that is worth taking the risk of self-giving love. And that is to demonstrate to this world, to the heavenly host, the beauty of how Christ has loved us and how we now receive him because of the spirit that you have given us, because of the new hearts that are responsive to his word, and to his love. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.